When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's a man who, he had the most unique power that I've ever even heard of. But in the old days, you know what a Polaroid camera is? I mean, they, in the, when they first came out, they were a big deal that you could actually develop the picture in the camera and you'd have your picture in like 60 seconds. And that was a big, big deal. But he would aim the camera, the lens of the camera at his third eye, you know, right in the middle of his forehead. And he could take a picture of what he was thinking about. <laughs> Bizarre, at, at the very least. Because I, 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 that doesn't even make sense. This guy, how he found out about this, uh, this particular skill he had, I don't know. Rich knew him. So one day he called me up. He said, you want to meet Ted Sirios? Sure, this is good. And at the time I was doing a pretty fair amount of freelancing. I thought there's gotta be something I can do with this. And uh, there was a big article about him in the Chicago Tribune magazine many, many years ago that I never, that never had left my mind. So, so Rich, set it up in an interesting way. He said, all right, we're going to go over to his place, his apartment. Uh, we're going we're gonna to find a drugstore in the neighborhood, which we did. He said, I'm going to wait in the car. You go in, you find some Polaroid film. I, it doesn't matter. Whatever kind you can see in there, pick like, pick the top box on the pile, pick the bottom box on the pile, Pick the middle box and I don't care. You're going to be in control of the film, which he was trying to make a point with this. So, so I went in, I found the Polaroid film section. I said, okay. So I buy the film and we go to visit Ted. And then uh, he was, he, this didn't always work, this particular thing that he had, this particular capability. <laughs> He was so reluctant and he didn't even want to, at first, even meet with me and try. Uh, uh, but he gave it a try after we loaded in the film that I had purchased. Yeah, but he had to, he, he pressed the camera into his forehead really hard and he had to think about it a really intense way. And then when he was ready, click, you know, he would do it sort of backwards, you know aiming right there. So it, the picture should come out completely black. There's no light coming in of any kind. Now the first couple of pictures, nothing. But then uh, he said, uh, he said, well, what do you want a picture of? And I said, all right, um, uh, I, might, I either said the Sahara Desert or a pyramid or something like that. And I'll be darned if that isn't exactly what came out of it. So I'm calling the shot and he, and he did it right in front of me. It's a picture of the desert. 
So this is another one of these. All right, that doesn't make any sense. And poor Ted was a, kind of an interesting guy. He he had a real like a blue collar type job. It was like I don't know a pipe fitter or something. And and um, he didn't understand it either. And he didn't know what to do with it. And it wasn't like he could you know get a job at a carnival. You know, he, or he didn't want to. He it was just this some kind of an extrasensory capability that he had that had kind of messed him up a little bit. Yeah. I mean, he didn't want to be an outsider like that. And then I thought, and I felt I, kind of kind of a compassion for this man who was so, he was really kind of troubled. Uh, just not a happy life. Do I, do I can I really want to bug this guy? I, and and uh, write about him, and that's going to bring him more attention. I wound up dropping that one. When I was freelancing a lot, in between being a reporter and uh, and becoming a, a teacher, yeah, I, I was pitching stories constantly. Yeah, I, I I might even have some letters of uh, rejection letters saying mm-hmm. we're not we don't want paranormal. <laughs> right. I'm Jim Perry. This is Euphemet, a show about the unknown and our relationship to it. This time, a journalist tells the story of an experiencer of strange events, an experiencer that's become him. Next on Euphemet. Nine forty-five p.m. I arrive. This black sedan smells like cigarettes, and I crack my window to let the wet summer air in. A redheaded girl dances, spinning in circles on a train platform off I-90. I'm finally back in Chicago. You're to meet us at Central Station at 4.30 p.m. John and I will pick you up. I've let everyone know that you'll be recording the entire time. A message from Dino. I stir. Dino has the fix. Nine forty-five a.m. Still hazy the night before. Sirens, light, smoke, spirals like the redhead, like John Dillinger's last stand. Last night the north side embraced me like a vice. Thirteen stories high, I shake the cobwebs loose as to gather my kit. I splay the steel out across the taut comforter, shotgun, hidden vest lapel, condenser microphones, ready to capture the spirit of these old saints of the second city. Dino? Yeah, he's a friend. You might know him as filmmaker Daniel Noah of Spectre Vision, and who I'm out here to interview, John. Well, that's his stepdad. You see, John was a reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times for around a decade. He was a great writer, curious, inquisitive, and sometimes that curiosity extended into the paranormal. Hello. I'm going to get in the front. What's up, buddy? Good to see you, man. Good to see you. John, hello. Hi. 
So good to meet you. Oh, this is uh, so pleasant out here. This passion came from lived experience, an early familial influence, not at all easy to explain to an editor. My mother was someone who had some psychic experiences. Nestled in the basement of his suburban home, Daniel and I hear John's story. She's a very creative person and uh, a very outgoing person. And her experiences were probably influenced me mm-hmm. in a certain way. What were some of those experiences? Well, she had uh, she had premonitions that came true <laughs> that were a little eerie. Uh, uh, she had uh, the night that my father's mother, my grandmother on his side, uh, died. Uh, she dreamt that, and they were two thousand miles apart, and. Uh, and then uh, she had a couple of those. She had, uh, uh, this is a, this, I find this dream that I'm gonna describe very powerful. It's hard to actually say it without getting emotional about it, but uh, she had a dream that she was standing on the shore of a river and there was a boat, a rowboat in the river rowing away from her. The person rowing the boat was her father, who at that time was, had been dead for a long time. And he was rowing a white-haired woman to the other shore, the other side of the river. And he looked up and saw her, my mother, this is all in the dream, he saw my mother standing on the shore and he said, are you coming this time, Joy? And she said, not this time, Daddy. So the next day she finds out that her, her aunt died pretty much right about the time that her dead father was rowing the dead aunt over the river. What's on the other side of that river? I I think we'd all like to know what's on the other side of that river. And we will. (laughs) Yeah, we will. (laughs) We will, and then we'll show up in somebody's... (laughs) Yeah, rowing a boat. (laughs) I know that's such a a standard kind of metaphor. It goes back to Greek mythology. You know, you, you cross the river, and then you're on... The other side. Anyway, she had several like that. And uh, it's, I guess it all, you know, kind of made me feel open to experiences that are like that. It's something that we, we can't really pin down uh, exactly. And I think that might be part of my interest uh, or maybe a big part of it because... It's this ongoing mystery. I've simply been interested in, I guess I'll call it the supernatural, but also things that are have, we have yet to explain that are in other areas, like unidentified aerial phenomena. This is when I was a high school student. We were living in in another suburb called Park Ridge. This is right before my parents abandoned me and moved to California. (laughs) Not that that was traumatizing, no. What's that joke about Rodney Dangerfield? He goes to school, he comes home, and they've said, we've moved. Well, (laughs) so I 
sometimes would say that. I, I, I went to college. I came home. I was a commuter student. I came home, and they had moved to California. <laughs> I don't know. There's somewhere out there. Anyway, we were still, everyone was still there, and I thought I saw this ex very bright reddish light just above the horizons. It's interesting how some, certain astronomical things are larger when they're near the horizon, like the moon. And I eventually decided that this was Mars, and it was just near the mm -hmm. horizon. But before I got to that point, I called, and there's a, there was a number. There was actually a number for the Air Force yeah. at O'Hare. Mm -hmm. So uh, so I called the number. They used to be the military used to have a part of O'Hare Airport. They don't anymore, but at the time they did. So I called. I got the Air Force office, and I said, I want to report a UFO. I, th I see something, I can't explain it. It's in the southwest guy. And, and the guy put his hand over, the, over the, the phone. I could hear him anyway. He said, hey, Harry, it's another one of those goddamn UFOs again. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops, what did I report to the wrong person? <laughs> I still remember that very clearly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a high school kid. What do I know? What do I know? There was a meeting of people who believe in UFOs in Chicago. Yeah, I went, I volunteered, I'm sure. But the editor was expecting me to make light of this, which I was not going to do. Uh, and I met Betty Hill. This is, goes way back to, I think it was the 60s, and they, they both, Betty and Barney, uh, were uh, abducted, they said later, and, and uh, they were, this is one of the earliest examples of, or, or that at least got publicity, anyway. You couldn't make fun of this woman. She was such a sweetie, and, and we had a nice chat about it, uh, and uh, and she was just kind of unaffected, and, and I just wrote it straight. And this is what these people have experienced. That's what they say they've experienced, and I wasn't going to put it down. I think the guy who had seen the first, uh, quote, unquote, UFOs, I interviewed Kenneth Arnold. <laughs> Again, completely straightforward, and he said, I never said they were saucers. They were actually delta-winged kind of things, and they, but they were skipping like saucers, and what got picked up was flying saucers. So, you know, you interviewed some very iconic people that were very impressive, like Groucho Marx, Muhammad Ali, but my favorite is J. Allen Hynek. Oh, yeah. Yeah, when I started teaching journalism, Professor Hynek was at Northwestern, uh, and he was a colleague of the fellow who was one of my mentors. So, I mean, Hynek was a regular astronomer. It was just that he had developed a reputation for investigating UFOs, as they were called then, because he was the junior member of the faculty Back when the Air Force started getting serious about what was called Project Blue Book, uh, the Air Force, I don't remember why they called Northwestern. I think Northwestern's astronomy department was pretty good then. And when the other 
professors heard why the Air Force was calling, that they needed a consulting astronomer, they all said, I'm not doing that. <laughs> you know, who's the junior? Heineck, we got a job for you. <laughs> he would tell this, this story to the students. He investigated many, 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 many uh, sightings of, uh, of UFOs. And the one that, unfortunately for him, and he was, he was almost bitter about it, was the one where he, he got so much attention because there were some sightings in uh, farther north. I think it was Michigan. Some cylindrical silver objects that were hovering in a forest or something. He investigated it, and he said he actually never came to a conclusion about what it was. It was kind of unexplained. But at some point, he said, well, swamp gas, I'm not going to rule that out. And the media just went to town with that. This guy thinks that, or at least some of the media did. As a former member of the media, I'm a little embarrassed by that. <laughs> I glommed onto something that sort of... It was kind of easy to, to make fun of him for saying that, but uh, he felt that was that was unfair, and that, he, in fact, he said at least ten percent of all the investigations that he did, and he did many, many, like hundreds, for the Air Force, uh, were completely unexplained. John wrote a little bit of everything. He was in the financial news section, at City News, but he liked writing features best of all, and it was there. The things got a little strange for John, and it all started with the paranormal gateway story for every paper around the country, the annual Halloween-themed story. So here I am working as a writer, and I have this interest that's sort of always hovering around over my shoulder, metaphorically speaking. <laughs> the editor I had at the time was always saying, come up with some ideas, let's see what we can do. Well, what's coming up? Well, let's see, it's autumn. Uh, uh, Halloween's not too far away. So when I said, how about something on a, someone who really does do ghost hunting? And uh, just find it very favorable there. I mentioned to another reporter, you know, I'm looking for some uh, ghost story ideas, but I, I'd like to do it real seriously. This was something to be either to be made fun of, or you just put it in this other weird little thing and then ha ha ha, or let's just not deal with it. We can't explain it. Let's just not deal with it. And it's like somebody knew somebody who knew somebody, and it was like about a third or fourth layer of connections that, you know, I think there's some guy who, you know, when I got to that point, there's some guy who really does, he takes it very seriously. He's looking into this. And that would have been like about two or three people away from me. <laughs> ghost stories abound in Chicago, but one of our city's ghosts is so popular, she's even had a song recorded about her story. Her home is along a stretch of South Archer Boulevard, in front of Resurrection Cemetery. The tale of Resurrection Mary serves as one of the best documented stories for Richard Crow, who makes his living telling ghost stories. Well, Resurrection Mary, during her life, was a very attractive, young, blonde, Polish-American girl. 
And then she died suddenly on the early to mid-1930s, but she didn't let death stop her, so she would come back to party again and again. Uh, she would look for rides down Archer, attend dances at places like the Melody Mill Ballroom, but when the evening was over, she'd wind up back at Resurrection Cemetery. And many drivers have given rides to this ghostly girl, only to have her get out of the car or disappear right in the car as they were driving by the front gate. So it took a while just to even find out how to reach him. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I think, but that was an example, though, of how careful Rich was being about this. He took this seriously, and he he wanted to be treated seriously. And luckily for him, he got connected with me, I suppose there are. It wasn't too much longer that he did call me back. I think he wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to make fun of him, uh, which I had no intention of doing <laughs> because of my own interest. Uh, so uh, whatever test he had for me, I, I apparently passed it. Um, so he, he called and said, uh, I know about, uh, I got a report, I got a letter from two homemakers living near Kenosha, Wisconsin, which is 40 miles north of here, maybe. Uh, and they had heard reports, and they went to check it out themselves. Uh, that there were strange lights seen on the side of what was supposed to be an abandoned farmhouse. We wrote a letter to him and said, we saw something. And he said, okay, let's go find out. After he called and he said, okay, we've got something. There's something near Kenosha. And I'm going to go up there and find out, and you can come along if you want. But we have to do it at night, because these these women who wrote the letter, that's when they were there, and they saw these unexplainable lights at the side of this uh, abandoned farmhouse. And uh, so, night, fine with me. So, so he picked me up. I didn't have a car. We picked up the two women. They were living near Kenosha, again, that's, you know, north of Chicago, just over the state line in Wisconsin. And, uh, and we went to this uh, location that they had identified. I felt it was kind of in the middle of nowhere. It was on farmland, and it wasn't even a farmhouse anymore. It was just the foundation. That was all that was left. So they had heard, the story was that Chicago gangsters used to own the house, when there was a house. And in those days, uh, the kinds of laws they were breaking <laughs> as gangsters were state laws, meaning that if you committed a crime in Illinois, if you could make it to Wisconsin, they weren't going to drag you back over the state line. So it was a hideout for them. And it wasn't that far from Chicago, maybe an hour. Well, actually, in those days, it probably would have been more like a couple of hours of driving to get up there. But there was some kind of big shootout, a rival gang, and then the bodies were thrown in a kind of a swamp right near the farm and left there. And then this is all what they had heard in the general rumor about this area. When these women went, because they had heard there were long time rumors about funny lights right in that site. 
When we turned off of the county road, we're on some little dirt road, drove for a while, got to the farmhouse, the women were telling us, this is it. And it was so dark, very dark. And, uh, and there's nobody within, I don't know, a couple of miles of us at least. And Rich said, I just want to sit here in the car for a minute. Let's, if there's any disturbance that's been caused by our arrival, let's just let it settle. So we waited for a bit, and then uh, the two women were in the back seat. And uh, after yeah, maybe five minutes, maybe a little more, uh, one of them said, there. <laughs> and she pointed, and there really was this funny bluish light, sort of oval-shaped, hanging in the air, about the general shape of maybe a person's torso. And it was under a tree that was back from this dirt road that we run right at, right near the farmhouse, sort of in front of it in front of the farmhouse foundation. That was all that was left. That was pretty startling. <laughs> and we, we looked at it for a while. It just hung there for a while. And then uh, uh, Rich wanted to get out and look. And, and uh, I admit, I was thinking, this really is starting to get pretty creepy. <laughs> and, and the women wanted to get out too and look. So we all got out of the car. And, and walked down this little track toward the house and the light went away. It just wasn't there. It was like maybe, you know, maybe the height of a person, maybe, uh, but there wasn't, it wasn't anything underneath. It was sort of like an oval shape. That's what I'm making with my arm. Uh, and it was very slightly kind of blue. So we kind of looked around a little bit and then we saw more lights and they were down right by the water. There was a certain point when we all thought, we've seen enough. The women were starting to get actually genuinely frightened. Like, this is outside of the realm of anything they had experienced. And, well, it was outside of the realm of anything I had experienced, <laughs> which was probably the calmest. But uh, uh, we decided that, you know, seeing a couple of these lights, okay. That I don't remember how many. I think it might have been as many as a half a dozen. Maybe that many. I, I, that part I can't remember. Uh, so we started walking back to the car. And at some point I turned around and the lights were following us. It was really distinctive. I mean, they had been down by the water, which was maybe 50 yards away from the farmhouse foundation. And... Now they were pretty much right next to the foundation of the house, and they kept coming down this little track we were walking on to the tree. And we got back to the car. <laughs> I think we all were ready. Okay, that's enough. We're, we're, we're out of here. And who knew what was next? I mean, as far as I know, and what I've read about apparitions and ghosts, no one's ever been hurt by a ghost or an apparition. But that isn't what you're thinking of right then. <laughs> I can't explain this. I'm getting nervous. I, this is beyond anything that I can explain in any rational way. I think I'm done. 
So we, we backed the car around, did a, did a U-turn, and, uh, and we left. <laughs> The very first person I saw about it, the very next morning, I was on my way to work. I, I didn't own a car in those days, and I, I took a bus in, uh, it's called Lincoln Park, it's a big park. I would walk into Lincoln Park and I'd get a bus. So I'm standing at the bus stop, and just by coincidence, a colleague of mine came by driving. So he stopped, and, and, uh, uh, and they said, hey, come on, I'll give you a ride to work. So I told him what had just happened to me the night before. And he immediately dismissed it like, this is just baloney. Like, how could you, what could it, but uh oh, I have to, I need to be careful about this, about how I explain this to, to other people. And I decided, all right, for myself, I have no rational explanation for this of any kind. And that's just, it's just going to have to be in that particular file drawer. But that's the way I wrote it. I wrote it straight. I saw blue lights. I can't explain them. Uh, and uh, and then a little bit more about Rich and his follow-up efforts, and and uh, if that's the kind of reaction I'm going to get from from people, then and Rich was like that too himself. He was very careful about who he would talk to about his his avocation of uh, I'll call it ghost hunting, but that, even that's a little bit flippant. The article ran on, I think it was Thursday the 12th. And then once the story ran, when everyone read it, right? And everyone at the paper read it. And yeah. So then what happened? Well, I didn't exactly get nominated for a Pulitzer for writing this. <laughs> it was, everybody thought, well, that's a fun kind of diversion. And it just sort of went on. From there, mm -hmm. and a couple of disc jockeys in Chicago uh, read the art and thought it would be a hoot if they went up to that site at midnight on Friday the thirteenth, and and they invited all of their listeners to join them. So hundreds of people went up there, and they found the site. And people are hiding in bushes, jumping in and out, trying to scare each other. It went on and on like this for a couple of hours. The state police got called out. It was a mess. A couple of people apparently got arrested for drunken disorderly or something. So Rich later said about this, if there were any apparitions there beforehand, boy, did they, they headed for the hill. Well, again, I'm paraphrasing. He said they, they would have left. Right back to the swamp. They would have gone back to the swamp. After the Richard Crow thing, I became, well, not exactly friends, but acquaintances with a, a young psychic woman. And we took her back to that site. She was sort of a medium, and she, she just did this reading for us, where she simply sat down on the foundation of the farmhouse and, 
it took her a little while, but then she was she was talking in this real funny voice. She told us later that that's her psychic guide on the other side, and there were spirits there. And and this psychic guide was was saying, yes, there are some troubled souls who are in this area. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, uh, that was the report. But somebody later said, yes, there was a mass killing not too far away. But I thought, well, what if they just did the shooting elsewhere and they threw the bodies in the swamp? And the lights were gone. That she took me, this young lady, took me to a meeting that she had of people who were very spiritual. And uh, uh, they kind of to a person they sort of didn't really know what to do with this capability that they had and i remember the the young woman telling me that that she used to talk to dead relatives they would be in her bedroom and she would have conversations with them from the earliest age that she could remember some people have just got some some extra element to them so we, we go to this meeting, and I was just there because I was so curious about this. And then they tried something during part of the meeting. Um, whoever the group leader was said, okay, we're all going to meditate for two minutes. And um, I joined in. You know, nobody said a word. Everyone was just thinking and feeling. And I thought, I don't know how I came up with this, but I thought that I was flying above the earth. When when the, uh, the leader of the group said, okay, we're done now, let's come back to where we are. And, and she went around the room uh, talking and somebody, a couple of people away from me said, John went somewhere. I don't know where he was, but he wasn't here with us. Who are these people who have this capability? I mean, I think my physical self was there, but he was tuning into some other part of my spirit. My spirit did go out of the room. Not only did it go out of the room, it went up 200 miles up in the air. Well, I don't know if I would have told you when you were only about five or six about some of these. That that would have been a little young. I don't remember exactly, but I do. I remember loving the stories. But I mean, the Kenosha one's the one I remember most. Yeah. I also have. I wonder if you even remember this. I remember when we were living in Champagne. You had a a friend came over, and I can't. I feel like in my memory it was Al Bernstein, but I don't think it was Al. Oh, it was, I think it was Lee Hughes. Oh yeah, it was Lee Hughes. He was and he a had reporter. a photograph. Go ahead. Yeah, he was a reporter for the Associated Press. Yeah. He was doing the same thing I was. Uh -huh. We were both getting a master's degree uh, with the, right. the possibility yeah. of going into teaching. Yeah. And I did, and he went back to journalism. <laughs> so I would have been nine at that time, because I was That's nine right. when we were in Champaign. That's right. And nine he, and ten. Yeah. I remember he set up a slide projector. He was so excited. He couldn't wait to show everybody this picture that I don't know where he got it or if he took it. Do you remember this picture? I'm trying to. 
It was mm. it was an apparition of a woman descending a staircase with no legs. In That's my right. memory, it's a remarkable yeah. image. I have no idea how remarkable it actually yeah. was. Yeah. But I don't remember where he got it. I don't either. I don't think he took it. I think he got it. No, I don't think but he, so. I remember he was just... Well, then, whatever happened to that? And it just kind of comes back to this idea that it's really hard to get anyone to publish this stuff. Yeah. Like, he had yeah. he had a money shot. And I don't know that anything happened with it. Yeah, again, in those days, it was really difficult yeah. to get people, especially in the mainstream media, to do anything except kind of make fun of this which is why I thought I was taking a chance just by writing that my article completely straight I saw and I said in the article I saw this and I can't explain it yeah there it is so I think it would have been the same for for uh, for Lee he uh, it would have been the same for him by the way but he's the writer somebody else is the photographer so the photographer must have right. given him right. the picture oh, right. or a print of the picture yeah, yeah. and uh but to your point, your job is to simply report information. And and it's, it reminds me of when I talk about my own story of how I was such a hardcore skeptic and then something happened. What I remember thinking at the time was, well, by my own standards, my criticism of people who believe this stuff has always been they're ignoring the facts. So by my own standard, I can't, I'd be a hypocrite if I ignored the facts, which is... And these facts point toward something paranormal happened. So I, can't, I have to react accordingly and I have to take this seriously. So it's, but there is this weird kind of double standard in journalism where it, it's, you report the fact, unless yeah. they get into esoteric topics and then we don't report those facts. Thank you for listening to this edition of UFOMED. This feature was edited and scored by John McEdward. Thank you to John for the story and Daniel for the producing help. Daniel is a listener of UFOMED and you can have your story featured too. Reach out at jim at ufomed.com. For everything UFOMED, including how you can subscribe to the show, links to our Patreon, which now includes a ad-free UFOMED feed, you can visit ufomed.com to learn more. Check out Night Drift, our weekly radio broadcast discussing Euphemed and hosting panels on topics at the intersection of society and strange. That's Sundays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern at nightdrift.com. This has been Euphemed. I'm Jim Perry. And until next time, keep looking up.